0: The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, Tony Macia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today's podcast is part of a special series we're doing in which we interview winners of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 Over 40 Awards. The recipients are people ages 40 and up who are making a big difference in the Charlotte area, people who saw a need and took action. The winners are chosen by an impartial panel of independent judges. We accept nominations in January and celebrate the winners in an in-person event in April. You can find out more about all of that at ledger40over40.com. The host of today's podcast is Steve Dunn, and his day job he's a mediator Who offers dispute resolution services through the Charlotte Office of Miles Mediation and Arbitration? Enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. I'm Steve Dunn. I am joined today by Dave Redding. Dave, welcome.
2: Oh, thanks, Steve. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Well, we're happy to have you. Dave, you work in Charlotte as a lawyer and you are one of the founders of F3. And I'm looking forward to asking you about all of the things that you do, but Within the subset of lawyers in the world, you're also a litigator. So you spend time working with clients, handling cases that are in court. That's a little bit different from some of the work that some other lawyers do. I wonder how you think about the work that you do.
2: That's a great question. I have a mission, which my firm adheres to, and it's to prepare for trial in order to resolve disputes as quickly and efficiently as possible. So within that mission, there are things that we do... To follow along, say a critical path to get to trial, because most trials settle, which is your job to help us do that, and you're very effective. Well, at you're
1: that. referring to me as a mediator, as a mediator right? mediator, right. and that's right. one of the steps in the litigation process, it right? Works. So the the complaint gets filed at the beginning, right. and and then at some point you come see someone like me for the mediation. But along the way, you you are guiding your client on a path towards trial. That's the idea, right?
2: That's right. And in my firm, we call that the critical path. And these are the things that they're longest in duration and require the most cooperation of other people to accomplish. So that comes from construction or really any kind of mission or project planning has this concept of the critical path. So if you're spending a bunch of time, say, building a house and you're worried about the mailbox, but you haven't poured the footings, you made a mistake. Because there's things on the critical path that have to be done. So in my firm, we've reduced those things to a set of steps that would look familiar to someone in construction. And that's, that's the way we do it. Since most cases are going to settle somewhere along the critical path, in my firm, we focus on that and, and accept that truth, and we would say, yeah, our, our really our mission, how we stay missional is to focus on that preparation. And in those times where we can't get a case resolved consensually, in other words, we can't get it settled for some reason, and we're going to trial, well, then we try it. But I would say 85, 90, 95% of my time is preparing for trial, doing those things along the critical path. And then the other 5%, 10 15% would be in trial. It's
1: an interesting thing about the litigator's life in that you are responsible for handling the actual work of it, the nuts and bolts, the filing documents in a certain way, in a certain format that say what they need to say and constructing arguments in the, the way that the judge needs to hear it to receive it well. But in addition to that, you're also shepherding a client through the process. You're accompanying somebody who is hopefully not that familiar with the process, right? And I bet a lot of the time you're working with folks who haven't been through it before. How do you handle that part of the job, the sort of the, the, the guiding and the counseling of an individual who's kind out of out of, their, you know, out of their lane in a way?
2: So the counseling part is what we call the third C of the mission essential tasks litigator, the first C being cross-examination. Second C being closing argument, and the third being counseling. So, we say in my firm that you have to be excellent at those three C's excellent. Everything else, just good, just good enough. But if you want to be an effective litigator, you must cross examine with excellence, you must close with excellence, and counsel the client with excellence. And I would say for the first 10 years of my career, I'm 26 years in now, I didn't have that third C. I wouldn't have said it. I would have said, Well, I'm really good at cross and I'm really good at, at close but counsel and client that's yeah I wouldn't even have defined it as a thing that I did it was just well the guy's there so I better talk to him as time went on I realized that that third c not only did it exist as a separate task as something that I had to be excellent at but it was more important than almost everything else that I did
1: well, here you are. You're you're quite famously over forty. Here, I'm, I'll, way, I, way over forty. I'm, I'm saying that to everybody who I talk to because you're you're noted for being over forty. As a winner of the forty over forty award, and I imagine that your skill in the counseling aspect of the profession came with time and with experience. And by the time you hit forty and went on past forty, you found yourself getting better and better at that. And I wonder if if the, if the attainment of wisdom as a man is part of developing that skill as a counselor in law.
2: I, I certainly think it is. And just to be clear, I'm as far over 40 as you can get. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 60 this year. So when I was...
1: now, You know, there's some
2: 80-year-olds and some 90-year-olds yeah, listening to this who are
1: saying you're a young man yeah. still. Right?
2: So when I was uh, voted 40 over 40 and I was 57 or whatever it was, that made me laugh. But yeah, I would say that one of the C's I didn't identify would be compassion. So as a man gets older, I believe he becomes more compassionate. I think the culture would call that empathy. I believe empathy is actually feeling what another person's feeling. And for the most part, I can't do that. I mean, I I can only feel what I feel unless it happens to be so. But compassion would be to see the pain, stress, distress that another human being is undergoing and to have a heartfelt and deep concern and care for that. And I would say about the time 40, maybe 41, 42 in my early 40s, that really started to evolve for me. I started focusing more on compassion. I don't, wasn't it a conscious decision? I didn't say, today I shall become more compassionate. I just started to feel it. And I think I became a, a far more effective litigator because instead of, in my mind, dragging my client down this pathway that it had to, that that he had to go on, I began leading him there, influencing him there. And at, you can't do that in my belief system unless you're understanding how he feels about it. And I would have been prone to say when I was say 38 or 39 to say, your feelings have nothing to do with it.
1: Right. And as an older person, you can relate to a, a, a broader range of human experience because you've been through similar type things yourself. Sure. Yeah. I wonder as a lawyer myself, thinking back over the years, it's easy, it's trite, but true to say there's no substitute for experience. And for me, it, I think In my own professional development, it related a lot to figuring out through not necessarily trial and error, maybe trial and error, just hard experience, just successes and failures, just finding out what works and what doesn't. And I think as a younger man, I certainly had a lot of bright ideas about some things that I thought would work or that I thought should work and had to find out simply by doing and by repeating what did and didn't, and I wonder if you have found the same over the years in your own practice, and if that's part, that this this concept, we are celebrating here at the Charlotte Ledger being over 40. Through <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's funny, because doing these interviews is actually causing me to like think about it in a way that I hadn't really thought about it before, but there is tr- something truly irreplaceable and valuable about
2: experience and learning through living. I think certainly in our joint profession, you know, in law school, they teach you the law very well, enough to Pass the bar. They also teach you how to think like a lawyer, which is not consistent with the way most people think. But they don't teach you how to apply those skills in any way. There's no real effective way to do that. You you have to do that on the job, and it takes a long time. I interviewed a young law school student today for for a summer position, and I and I said it. Hey, he said, "How long will it take me to be, you know, a partner, fully effective?" And I said, "It takes five years to learn how to litigate, and five years to learn how to, to attract clients." to support yourself. So 10 years, and then it takes 10 years to learn how to make money doing it. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, that's pretty much, pretty much the truth of the matter. You know, it it really takes that long. It's a very difficult skill to learn. With regard to the counseling thing alone, it took me 15 years to stop asking the questions of a client in that first meeting that I wanted answered in the order I wanted answered. When did you form your company? When did you first learn of this? And simply to say, Tell me what's going on. It is amazing how
1: effectively an open-ended question, yeah. will, the response will tell you what you most need to know.
2: It's true. I mean, I I would try to force a client through the format my own brain of Checklist. What, I, yeah, what I needed to know. I mean, there's certain amount of information I need to know to represent him, whether there's a potential plaintiff or defendant, and I would embark to get that information and become kind of impatient. Because the client would keep telling me how he felt. I went through this for a long time. And I finally said, you know, if I'm doing this backwards. He wants to tell me how he feels. And embedded in those feelings is the information I need. I just flipped it. Instead of resisting his attempts to tell me how he felt about it, I would start, I'd start there. So I, I little, first question is, is always for me with a new client. Tell me what's going on.
1: Talking effectively is one big part of the job, but listening effectively is part of how you get there. True,
2: true. That's that's a wisdom thing, you know, and that's different than knowledge, and and it takes time. So I like how the ledger did the 40 over 40. I, it be In Charlotte for a long time, we've had the 40 under 40. Right. And uh, I, I was not 40 under 40 or not selected for that, but I, I thought, well, that, that's an interesting list of people to make. And I looked at that list every year it would come out, and I'd say, oh, yeah, that, that person's really – You know they're really kicking it. You know I admired those people, but it's a, it really did leave out a a tremendous number of people that may have figured out how to be effective in whatever they were doing a little later in life.
1: So you, you, you have you're a thoughtful guy. You develop your thoughts about this as you talk about your law firm and how you do things. It's clear that it's there's a certain level of formality to it. You know when you talk about the critical path and the three C's and the your definitions of things. And you collect a lot of these thoughts in your writing. And I understand from talking to you before that you have had a habit of writing every day. Do you still do that? I do that every day. Yeah. First thing in the morning?
2: Usually first thing in the morning. And if I miss that, maybe later on in the day. I think everybody's got all these thoughts swirling in their head and sitting down and just writing them down with no particular intent to turn it into anything. I think it's a good exercise in general. And then if it has any value, if you want to organize it and share it with people for whom it might be helpful, then that's, that's being an asset to the community. So I, I, I find that to be rewarding.
1: Speaking of the first thing in the morning, in addition to writing, one of the other things I imagine that you probably do a lot of mornings is work out. You are well known in Charlotte as being one of the founders with Tim Whitmire of f 3 an organization of men who get together in the mornings to work out and to share with each other, fellowship with each other. This is something that started with just the two of you, and, and it just kind of grown. I, I would venture, I guess, it's it's grown more than you imagined that it would. I don't think I, I don't think you started with a vision of something that was is now. It, it's close to all fifty states at this point, right? Or is it? And, and I in think some we're countries, I so think
2: like, we're missing Maine. Well you got to get on in that. the con- <laughs> in the continental the United States uh, and we haven't gotten Hawaii Alaska yet, but we're in forty nine states I think it's eleven countries right now and i'm I'm a little uncertain we don't count we do have a census fifty or sixty thousand men we believe are participating that's more of a estimate based on the average size of a workout but yeah it's in the last twelve years it's grown well past anything Tim or I ever envisioned we. We had a pretty clear and limited vision of what we were trying to do, which is simply p- provide a place for men to kill three important birds with one stone, which is to work out, have a place to work out, fellowship with each other, and then explore faith in a, in a very general sense. So fitness, fellowship, and faith. Those are three are, Fs. Those are the
1: three Fs of F3, right? Right. Yep. right. And this is uh, all of these things are related in some way to... Male friendship and the need for among among men to have relationships with other men, and that's something that you at at one time in your life perceived there to be a need for, a lack of in the lives of a lot of men.
2: That that's true. I th- I think what it it was an attempt or is an attempt that seems to be working to address three things that nag a man as he emerges into his early forties, kind of that period we were talking about before. So when you're consumed with your career and raising kids and all that less cognizant of it and when you start getting into a leadership position people start to look to you and you feel ill-equipped for that you also feel very lonely you know because you don't have those male friendships anymore so lined it up in that way what if what are the three things guys always seem to be worried about at that age well their weight their fitness it just nags at you right i'm out of shape i'm gonna get in shape i'm going to the gym It's just a constant drumbeat of concern and second a palpable sense of loneliness you know you don't you have buddies at work or you have your old high school buddy who lives in a different town you have maybe the your your wife's friends' husbands who aren't really you didn't choose them right they're friends of convenience or whatever we call those mandates like a play date and then uh this sense of well oh, I'm halfway through kind of the expectation of my life and haven't given it much thought whether I'm a church goer or not, but what exactly is gonna happen when I breathe my last breath? you know how did I get here and you know what is what does that mean and and figuring those three things out, or at least being on the path to exploring ways to grasp answers to them, that was the underlying genesis of what F3 was designed to do. So apparently, you know, if looking at the result, providing a forum for that for free, because...
1: Well, I was going to say, there's there's a few things that are key about it. There's
2: five core principles. What are the five? So open to all men. Yep. All workouts are free. Always held outdoors. They're led by the men in the group rather than say say a professional. And the last one is they always end up with what we call a circle of trust. And there's no rules about that. Most locations, they just get in a circle. You count the number of guys that are there, say each other's names. And if you're so inclined, you end it with some sort of prayer or could be anything. And wherever it is, workouts in Seattle where I've been, they don't say the same things at the end as the workouts at Myrtle Beach. But not surprising, right? Those are the five core principles we have no rules. And as long as you adhere to those core principles, you're free to do it any way so you want.
1: So you go to these things when you're traveling, right? Oh, you, yeah. You got, and, and when you show it, do you tell them that you're coming? <laughs> generally not you just walk up and, and they they know who you are right i mean this, this part of this is there's a community right like, ever... sometimes yeah you yeah. know
2: I, I actually like it better when they don't
1: yeah so F, f3 name that's another thing right so right. your f3 name is dread right? which right. i gather is a, is from your name dave redding it's and sort
2: of... the movie judge dread okay perfect so it's a combination of those things. gotcha right. so
1: you're dread but that's Part of the tradition or the ritual that F3 has is that you, you get your name on your first workout. Is that right?
2: It's, you know, it's a tradition, so there's no rules around it. There's some, there's some locations where you have to come twice. But I would say most places, you show up that first time, you get in the circle of trust. We go around, everybody says their name. If you don't have a name, you're an FNG, which is friendly new guy. Right. And then the, usually what we do is say, where are you from? Where'd you go to college? Do you have any hobbies?
1: Well, in addition to the nickname thing,
2: and it's interesting, Charlotte Charlotte
1: being the birthplace of F3, I think most people have probably, anytime you're out in the morning and you're driving by and you see like 12 dudes doing burpees by the side of the road or something. Dressed in black
2: in a parking lot. There's a good chance that it's an F3 group.
1: There's a lot of people driving around with the bumper stickers and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a known thing around here. And and so there's a lot of folks who look at it from, from the inside who are part of it. And there's a lot of folks who are aware of it sort of from the outside looking in and from the outside looking in the the nickname thing is a thing. And then there's all this lingo that's associated with it. And do you still have the glossary on on your website? The the lexicon. Yeah. The lexicon. Okay. And who are are you primarily responsible for that? Or is this sort of a collective effort? Not
2: anymore. It's definitely collective. So one night, maybe a 2012 or so. We, this is we had a like very rudimentary Google blog that we used as our as our website. Now what we have is extremely sophisticated. It's amazing. But I started a lexicon. Started a second blog using just Google thing, and because we had all these terms that we used, FNG being being one of them, right? And I said, okay, guys are asking what this means, so I I wrote it down, and and that was the start of it. And guys start, I just, anybody could add to it, started adding to it, came a wiki, right? Of sorts. And then it became, I suppose, now it's pretty sophisticated. Like somebody's, there's like a Twitter handle off of it and it's, it's become a thing. That's how it started.
1: Like so many other aspects of it, it's taken on a life of its own. And it's, it's sort of a, a decentralized organization in a way, right? Like you right. not in the same sense that you expect each member of the local workout group to lead the group right. at some point when these seeds get planted all around the country and all around the world, there, there's nobody looking over their shoulder, like nope. making sure that they're adhering to the the rigid rules of nicknaming or anything like that. Right. You've, you've created, and it seems like the lexicon is a part of this perpetuation of the culture in a way, a sort of, so that folks who, when they're traveling, can go as you have done and as people do and know that they're walking and know a little bit about what they're walking into. Sure. And, and for the listeners to this podcast, I want it to be understood that if anybody ever wants to work out, right, they, they just have to show up. Yep. Isn't that the way it works? You just, yep. you go to the website. What is the website?
2: F3nation.com.
1: F3nation.com. It's the letter F and the number three, nation.com, That's right? And, and you can, you can just click on there and find out where your nearby workout is, and and just go there.
2: We'll have maps to get you there, and you you show up, you walk up, somebody will say to you, "Hey, are you an FNG or or are you are you DR, which means downrange?" So meaning, you know, are you from Albemarle, North Carolina, but now you're in Puget Sound, and you say, "Yeah, I'm from I'm from Albemarle," and uh, you just join in. So the lexicon is designed to do a few things. One is to provide a ligament, so. If you're from Albemarle, North Carolina, and you're in, in Puget Sound, you're using the same phraseology. So it gives you some consistency. You know. Right. You know, so we have different names for things. A push-up we call a Merkin. So, you know, yeah. a leader calls 12 Merkins, you know what to do. So that's that's one reason for it. Another reason for it is that every movement has a language, every single one. We lawyers have very specific language. Right. I was in the military for nine years. Right. We had specific language. Most faith, most faith systems have specific language, and they it provides the members of the group or the movement with a a thing that bonds them together. The culture arises from the language, and you exhibit commitment to the group by learning to speak the language more effectively, and I think that's a natural happenstance. So it's one of those things that just, I created it because guys were asking about it, And they wanted a place to go to look at it and to study it. So I created it for that purpose. And it arose from that because it served a purpose. We're very much a trial and error organization. The only criteria for something that we're going to continue to do is it's helpful in some way. And the sole criteria for something we're going to cease to do is it's no longer helpful in any way. The decentralization is by design. So Tim and I based the structure of F3 on a book we read called The Starfish and the Spider, which is about leaderless organizations and the idea of being a spider is highly centralized like a feudal type organization cut the head off the spider and it dies whereas a starfish is is has very little centralization to it that's really the authority power and obligations and duties are in the appendages if you cut off the leg of a starfish it grows into a new starfish and the the missing leg grows back so we modeled f3's growth on that and its structure on that and we're always reluctant to add any bureaucracy or anything right, to it right. until we were just stretched thin, kind of like a snake shedding its skin mm. to grow bigger, like only when it's painful. Mm. And uh, that's how we started. And we still, we still do it that way. That's why we, we have one full-time employee. We have several 1099s, but one full-time employee. And I think we're getting ready to hire our second. But for an organization as big as we are that does what we do- That's pretty lean. It, it's lean. How long have you been in Charlotte? Since 99. How'd you get here? To jo- I took a job. I was in Asheville practicing law and was offered a job here by Kilpatrick Stockton. So I came down here to work for them and moved a couple firms after that and ended up starting my own firm in '07.
1: Starting your own firm in Charlotte. You've been here since 99. Charlotte's changed a little bit since then. As someone who's been working in Charlotte, you're certainly familiar with the legal community here and- through F3 and your other activities outside of work, you've gotten to know the community really well. You're an active type of guy. I wonder what you think about Charlotte's past, present, and future.
2: Sure. You know, I don't know a heck of a lot about Charlotte's past. I'm not from North Carolina. So, uh, and in fact, I wish there was a little more history to Charlotte I could read about. But Charlotte is a unique city, I think, in, in that it has a strong cultural tradition, which is discernible if you're here for any pers- per any amount of time. But uh, Charlotteans do not seem to care much about our architecture, so we are quick to tear down a building and put up a new building. The thing about Charlotte that Charlotte is very quick to adapt to chaos, and which fits my my personality pretty well. And so, if you take the chaos of the of the of the recession in 2008, for instance, most of us who were here, we kind of remember, but I mean, we are we are a banking center and one of our two major banks essentially almost disappeared. And, and it was a huge thing. And Charlotte reinvented itself very quickly. I mean, before my time, Charlotte was a trucking center. I mean, there's been a couple of different things, but now Charlotte, we have whole neighborhoods like the South End, didn't exist ten years ago, I mean, did, weren't weren't there in any significant way. And looking over the last twenty years since I've been here, there's no area of town that I can say, "Wow, that's really going to heck," you know. Right. Every single area of town is either improving dramatically, improving mildly, or is about the same. But the about the same's are far less than the improvers. It's a really remarkable way to look at it, and. If you give me a choice, if you say, look, there's a tension between it, but you have to make a choice between retaining architecture or characters of neighborhoods or all that or growth and adaptation to change, what do you choose? I'm going to say growth and adaptation to change. I think Charlotte is in proper tension with the idea of accelerating, with the idea of moving towards a place of advantage for all our citizens where you're providing a safe and productive place for people to live and raise their families, and we have problems like everyone else. But uh, I believe we're very unique in that. And but under my face system, that's not accidental. That's by design. And the only question in my mind when I look at, and I try to look ahead and say, are we going to be able to continue, or will the, some of the things that have hamstrung other cities that were succeeding w- are, are we potentially victims of those too? I hope not. And I think the difference between us and many of those other cities, we have, we have great leadership. And the ledger would be a, a, a perfect example of that.
1: Well, Dave, I really appreciate your being with me today. I wonder, as we close it out, you have the great fortune to run your own law firm. You've got your own business. And as part of that business, you employ younger lawyers. And you have the opportunity to mentor them. What are the key insights you've gained? As somebody who is now, in your own words, well past 40, what have you learned and what do you tell your colleagues?
2: Two two major things in response to that question. First one is that litigation and leadership are inextricably intertwined. You it's the highest form of leadership in my opinion to be able to lead people over whom you have no institutional control. So I don't have any power over a judge, quite the opposite. I don't have any power of opposing counsel. I don't have any power of my own client. I don't have any power of the jury. I don't have any power over the clerk. You know, there's no one over which I have any institutional authority whatsoever. So absent institutional authority to be able to influence people to agree with you. So, and and when I say that, the best possible outcome for my client is the objective. And sometimes my own client is fighting that because he he doesn't, he just can't get there in his own mind. So to be able to lead in that environment is the highest form of leadership in my mind, in my experience. You know, when I was a a special forces A-team leader, an infantry platoon leader, they were obligated by the Uniform Code of Military Justice to, to do what I told them to do, you know, but here to influence people over whom I have no power. So I, what I teach my young lawyers is, if you want to be an effective litigator, it's not just a matter of being good at the three C's or anything like that. You also have to be a very effective leader to get that done. Intertwined or in, in with that is also part of, one part of F3 leadership, which is you must be fit. So I spend a lot of time talking to my young lawyers about that. Uh, You know, Steve, that lawyers are, particularly litigators are very subject to alcoholism, all the isms, right? I mean, it's a difficult job. It's frustrating, difficult. And if you're not fit, you can't do it. So I talk to them a lot about that.
1: Well, Dave, thanks so much for being with me today on the Charlotte Ledger Podcast.
2: Honored and pleasure. That's it for today. The
0: Charlotte Ledger Podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. And you can find out more about our 40 Over 40 Awards at ledger40over40.com. Queen City Podcast Network.com.